This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelore. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts, we're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. Whoa, okay. Honestly, this episode, uh, I, I, I just wasn't expecting it to go all of the places that it went. I thought this was going to be a completely different conversation about self-talk and how to speak to yourself kindly. And we did talk a little bit about that, but really this is the type of conversation that is the definition of raw beauty talks where we really go into our guest's story today, and she has a pretty incredible one. I am going to say that this is probably one to listen to without the kids. It's more adult conversation and topics, and I will do a trigger warning for uh, drug addiction, and I think that's the main one that I need to do a trigger warning for. This conversation was just, I mean, mm, it was good. I was having a coffee, like a real coffee with it, and I am feeling awake after this conversation. So our guest today is Vasavi Kumar. She is a licensed therapist, a podcast host, and the author of Say It Out Loud, a new book that she has just released. She's not your typical coach or therapist, though. Her methods are rooted in science and Eastern mindfulness tools mixed with a little bit of sass, I can agree, and a whole lot of passion. So in this conversation today, Vasavi and I started off talking a little bit about her story, how she was inspired to write this book, Say It Out Loud. And the story really became the podcast interview. In this episode, Vasavi opens up about her diagnosis with bipolar disorder. She talks about her addiction to cocaine and cigarettes and how she ultimately has overcome them to live her most authentic, peaceful life. I'm so excited and honored to have Vasavi joining us on the show today. Thank you for being here. I know I had to cancel a couple of times on our way to recording this episode. So I'm so glad to have you here. I'd really love to just start from the beginning, like take us back to where your journey began and tell us a little bit about how you got to this place where you are right now. That's a great question. So I always like to start with how I was raised. I believe that how we were raised, it doesn't have to necessarily determine the trajectory of our life, but it does definitely give us some roots. I grew up in on Long Island, New York, as a first-generation Indian immigrant woman. And I talk about this in my book, Say It Out Loud, where I would stand in between my parents when I was a kid, Erin, and I could hear them argue. Well, I would, I would mostly hear my mother argue. She had no problem saying it out loud. And I would stand in between them and I would mediate them. 
And I would try to get them to communicate with one another. My father was the kind of man who shut down. My mother was more explosive. And so I would try to mediate them, like pretty much starting from the age of four, which no child should have to do. No child should have to parentify, therapize, mediate her parents. But hey, that was my life. That was the hand of cards that I was dealt. And it's all good because here I am today. But yeah, from a really young age, I just intuitively knew and I could pick up on the non-spoken as well as the energy of my parents, like especially my father, who he wouldn't explode. He would not say the kind of things that my mother would say to him, but I could feel his frustration. And so I, I became my father's mouthpiece from a very young age. And so I like I became I, I was never the kid growing up that that didn't talk. I was the kid that got in trouble for saying it out loud. I'm still to this day the the, the brown sheep in the family because I just knew from a young age, if y'all could just listen to each other and you could say how you really felt, everything will work out. Everything will work out. Like I still to this day believe you can have the worst conflict in the world. You can have the most explosive conflict in the world. And if two people decide to come together to repair, it can work out, but it requires both people. So I chose professions later on in life. I have my master's in special ed. I have a master's in social work from Columbia. I became a coach after that in 2010. So I've been doing this for over a decade. I chose professions that allowed me to help other people with their voice and their self-expression. But on the personal front, you know, what I was dealing with were my own mental health challenges. You know, at the age of 19, I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that is one um, psychiatric illness that people that that's highly stigmatized. You know, it's like anxiety, ADHD, depression, I think people feel comfortable with. But bipolar disorder, people don't really know about. They think it's just a mood disorder and that's not really what it is. But I learned at the age of 19 when I got diagnosed on the more personal front, how to deal with my racing thoughts, how to deal with the mind that I was given. And the way that I was able to learn how to thrive with the mind that I have was by saying it out loud. I mean, we all have many different voices in our head. I know I'm not the only one. We all have different parts to ourselves. Each of those parts has its own subpersonalities. Each of those subpersonalities has its own unique voice, texture, tone of voice, uh, personality, like I said. So for me, writing this book is not just about, you know, being self-expressed. It's about having a calm and clear mind so that you can courageously pursue your dreams. Oh, I love this. We're just getting to know each other now, but I've also had a long history of anxiety. And so I talk a lot about navigating the voices in your head and the chatter and how to uh, find that inner place of peace where we're not as connected to those thoughts. I, I just want to back up for a moment, if you're comfortable going there, to talk a little bit about the bipolar diagnosis and how that presented. Like, how did you end up finding out that you were bipolar? Thank you for asking that question. So first of all, let me just say, I grew up pretty sheltered, right? I mean, I, I was I wasn't definitely a rebel, you know, starting from like seventh, eighth grade. You know, I, I actually smoked my first cigarette when I was 12 years old. I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. I smoked for about 27 years. I smoked for 27 years. You would have never known looking at me because here I am telling everyone to live their best life. But behind closed doors, I smoke my, you know, my uh, parliament menthol lights, my camel crush. I don't smoke anymore. I stopped smoking when I turned 39. I was 39. I'm, I'm now, I'm about to be 41 actually in a few days, but I stopped smoking because something about turning 40 gave me the heebie-jeebies and I'm like, okay, girl, we can't be fucking around like we used to. We need to stop. So I stopped smoking uh, when I was 39. It took me a long time to stop though, because it, I mean, 
nicotine is one of the hardest things to stop. I mean, like it's, it's hard. addictive. <laughs> yeah, it's addictive. Were you it's smoking more- like a pack a day behind doors, or was it more like like one cigarette at the end of the day? I well, so I would smoke like half a pack a day, depending on my anxiety level, depending on what was going on. So, so we can actually get to that. But I I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 19. I was in college at Boston University. I had never experienced that level of freedom before because my mom didn't really let me do much. Like sleepovers were out of the question, sweet 16 parties, proms, all of that stuff. I mean, I did all of it, but everything was always a battle in my house. It was always like, no, you can't do this. I'm okay if you tell me no, but tell me why. Like, And as a kid, I was that question. I was not what you would call an obedient child. That's my older sister. I was not the good child. I was the one that wanted to know why. Like, why are you telling me to do this? Anyway, I go to college. I go buck wild, right? I'm like, you know, smoking hits from the bong. I'm drinking. I'm using cocaine. I'm fucking around. I I actually lost my virginity when I was a sophomore in college. I must have had sex with like seven guys in two weeks. Very promiscuous. I wasn't raised this way. I was not raised as I grew up in a very conservative Hindu household. And, and, you know, with that, I was studying psychology like everyone does when they're a freshman or sophomore in college. Everyone takes a psychology class. And I was studying mood disorders. And I remember studying for an exam, reading about bipolar disorder, reading about the symptoms. And I was like, oh, I think I'm manic. I think I'm manic. I've just spent, you know, two grand in one week and I've had sex with seven guys in the past two weeks. I have no need for sleep. I talk really fast. Like I was a classic textbook case and I wasn't doing well academically. And I'm actually quite an intelligent academic person, but I just wasn't doing well in school because, you know, I had other extracurriculars. And um, I transferred home sophomore year of college. That's the one time I listened to my mother. My mother said, I don't think you're doing well. I think you need to come home and be with us. And I just surrendered, actually, and I agreed. And so I came back to Long Island, New York. She took me to the psychiatrist in Manhattan. And he said, yeah, your daughter's really smart. She she diagnosed herself spot on. I had enough self-awareness to know that this is not me. Like, this is not the real me. The, this Vasavi was acting out. Anyway, they, they put me on all this medication and it was rough, you know, being on a cocktail of medication, gaining around 50 pounds. I went from being like 140, 5'5", to 175, 178, you know, like all this medication. Uh, but I will say this, and this is not just a, this is not like a spiritually bypassing thing. You know, the truth is, it's not easy living with bipolar disorder, you know, but the greatest blessing that I've been given is I know myself better than anybody. I know what my triggers are. I know what feels good. I know what doesn't feel good. I know what to do to make myself feel safe. Because when you've lived with this type of mind and these symptoms, you either learn and get to know yourself or you let your mind control you. And I refuse to let my mind control me. So on a, on a positive front, I've learned to really know myself. I know myself better than anybody, but it's hard. It's, it is difficult, you know, when you have a chemical imbalance. Like I, I wasn't, I don't think I was born this way. Maybe there's a little bit of genetics because we do have mental illness in our family, yes. But I also think a lot of it was my environment, how I was raised, not, I didn't feel safe emotionally growing up. I was provided for, had a roof over my head, had food in the fridge, everything was always paid for. Money was never an issue, but there was no emotional safety in the house. Absolutely not. My father provided us with safety and a lot of fun, but it was not consistent between my parents. And so I grew up with a very disorganized attachment. And so with my mind, mentally, I never felt safe up here inside of my head. And your nervous system as well. Oh my God. And are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, like dysregulation. I mean, I, I was used to being dysregulated. So substances helped, 
Like substances kept me in that state, but I was used to feeling agitated. And now it's like, if, if something makes me feel good, like too up or too down, I'm like, I don't want it. I like neutral. I'm neutral. I just want neutrality in my life. And it, yeah, that's, that's, that is what I search for. And I, but it would have taken you a long time to get there because when we have a dysregulated nervous system, that becomes our emotional home or what feels familiar and comfortable. And so we find ourselves doing things to get our system jacked up to that space again, like promiscuity, uh, drugs, spending money, emotionally unavailable men. That was, that's been the biggest thing for me. Like I've been married and divorced. I got married when I was 28. I was in two four-year relationships after that each four. So pretty much my thirties were the, were the time in my life where I had my ass handed to me. Let me just say that. Like every single lesson that I did not learn, it's like, okay, your thirties, you're gonna, you're gonna basically destroy your life so you can build yourself back up. And so I'm speaking from that place now, you know, now turning 41, looking at the men that I would date, the kind of bullshit that I would put up with, you know, and I, I honestly thought it was because I had low self-esteem, but now I'm like, no, I've always been a really confident person. It was really more of, no, I'm used to being treated this way. I'm used to this. I've been doing this since I was a kid. I've been chasing after my mom and dad for attention since I was a kid. I've been in proving mode since I was a kid. And I always thought it was like, me. Like I have low self-esteem. I have, and I'm like, no, I actually don't. I actually think pretty highly of myself. It was more of my nervous system. And so that's really the season that I'm in. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend 
friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code rawbeautytalks at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code rawbeautytalks. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you over. Okay. So you're diagnosed with bipolar. You're, um, navigating this time at home, just taking a, taking a breather, getting things quote unquote back on track. Talk to me a little bit about the, the smoking and the addiction piece, because I feel like smoking is such an interesting one where I'm hearing a lot right now about people reducing the amount of alcohol that they're drinking and alcohol intake. But smoking, I feel like is, is it moved from being cool to being more taboo. And so we never hear about it anymore. Yeah, I know. I was a closet smoker. I definitely held a lot of shame around smoking because yeah, I'm quite vain, right? Like, I don't want to smell like smoke. I don't want my teeth to be yellow. Like, I care about what I look like. So I don't want to reek like an ashtray. You know, it's funny that you want to talk about that. I, I'm totally, I mean, I love smoking cigarettes. Are you kidding me? It was my reprieve. It was like, I was never alone as long as I had my cigarette. I could have a bad day. But if I had an iced coffee and a cigarette, I'm good. Like, but that's, you know, having gone to rehab twice for cocaine, I'm now four years sober as of March 27th. I can tell you this, that the cure for addiction is not sobriety. The cure for addiction is connection with oneself. And so for me, the smoking was just a way for me to have some sort of connection. You know, when I actually started smoking, it was because the cool girls, right? I say that in quotes because I don't think anyone's, yeah, the cool girls at school who bullied me that was the way that I thought that I should fit in. And so I would go after school instead of, you know, studying my math, which is what my parents would have wanted. I was going behind the school and smoking cigarettes with them. So I see now, you know, me being a poor little thing, you know, 12 years old, just wanting to have acceptance. I didn't feel safe at home. I definitely didn't feel safe at school. So, you know, if you can't beat them, you join them. And that's what I did. I wanted a sense of connection when I was a kid. And so I knew like I even at that age, I was like, I should not be doing this. I should not be smoking cigarettes. It's not good for me. But, you know, when when you want a sense of belonging and you don't get it at home, you're willing to do whatever you have to do to get it. And that's just kind of where I was at. And I couldn't stop. So I mean, I just couldn't. It's always been a part of my life. Cigarettes have always been a part of my life for a very long time. Now I can't even ever imagine even picking up a cigarette. But yeah, I stopped when I was 39. And um, I'm happy that I did that. You know, I mean, I want to talk about that process of quitting, but you sort of just dropped a bomb in there when you mentioned that you have gone, you're like, just glaze over that part where I went to rehab twice for cocaine. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's just back the card up before we talk about quitting cigarettes and talk about this cocaine addiction. And because listen, like for those of you who are just listening to this episode, when I first checked in on Vasavi's you know, website and Instagram page, you would never know any of this unless you had, were digging a little bit deeper. Like this isn't somebody who you imagine being a drug addict and like, and, and, and running a six figure coaching business. Yes. At so the same let's, time. let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Because I'll tell you this right now, I want to talk about this. I see a lot of people in the coaching and entrepreneurial space, like snorting ketamine on the weekends, going on their journeys on the weekend and doing all that stuff. And I'm like, 
I have no desire when people ask me to like go into ceremony. I'm like, I don't want to do shit. I've been in rehab twice. I've been out of my mind. Like, I don't want to do that. Like you do you. But there are a lot of entrepreneurs that I know who do not know how to manage their creativity and their stress and their anxiety. So they resort to drugs. You know, I was in a very codependent, toxic relationship after my divorce and I had dabbled with cocaine in college, but it never became a thing, right? It just, cause I was in college. I was getting my master's. Like, you know, education was always number one for me. Cocaine was one of those recreational things. Then after I got divorced, I met this guy who was eight years younger than me. By the way, I had two masters at that time. I was a, I was a newly divorced woman, came from, come to this beautiful Indian family. I went to Columbia. You, you, once again, on paper, I'm spotless. I'm spotless on paper. Like most of us, we, we, we present a very nice, persona, but inside we have our, we, we, we have our skeletons. This is why I say it out loud. I talk about this out loud because I can't tell you, Aaron, how many times people have heard me share this story. And they're like, man, I really struggle with cocaine too. And I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. So, so my, my, my relationship with cocaine, um, man, it, I started like one day a week. I was dating this guy. He was my rebound lasted way too long. A rebound should literally only last you like a week. He he lived with me for four years. So rebound. <laughs> red flag right there. The rebound. What would you give a rebound? Like one night, two times? Like get I, I would say maybe like a week. Especially like a if week they're bringing the- cocaine into the mix. This yeah. is another red flag. Yes. I, so I was chemically hooked on this guy. I, I was chemically hooked to cocaine. I was psychologically dependent on this guy. I mean, it was all the things. I went from, you know, going one day a week on the weekends. Oh, Yeah. Oh, I just signed this new client. Time to celebrate. I just wanted him to be happy. I didn't want to be abandoned. So I, I, you know, we, drugs were in the mix and I got hooked, man. I went from one day a week to two days a week, three days a week, four days a week, five days a week. And then I'd have to give myself a break because it would hurt. My face would hurt. My nose would hurt. I'd be sleep deprived. I had clients and I was, even some of my clients from back in the day are like, you were still the best goddamn coach. Even if you were addicted to cocaine, they're like, you were still the best coach. And I'm like, yeah, because that's what we do. We can give to others so well, even when we're suffering in silence. I dedicated my book to all those who suffer in silence for a reason, because I know for me, I could not share with anyone that I was now hooked on this drug. I had a persona that I had to live up to. I created this persona of who Vasavi is, and I had to rise to that occasion. But eventually, you know, the drugs got a hold of me, and I went to rehab in 2017, November of 2017. And I had to go back again in March of 2019. And in between that time, 2017 and 2019, the the two biggest mistakes that I made, which I think a lot of people who go to rehab and come out of rehab, I hadn't gotten rid of all the people in my life from my past. I was still in and in on and off with that ex that I told you about, even after rehab. And with that sub point. I still did not have a solid relationship with God, my higher power, whatever. I still made a man. I made my relationship. I made this guy higher than my higher power, right? And so when you put a human being above your higher power, that human being is always going to fail you because it's a human being. And when a human being fails you and you don't have a solid sense of self, you are going to go back to that thing. In the very, I mean, I'm not saying this is across the board for everybody, but for me, Erin, you know, I was seven months sober. I got back together with my ex during that time. He broke up with me because he thought I was boring. And I'm like, I'm not boring. I'm just sober. Like, I'm just sober. That doesn't mean I'm boring. And I couldn't handle the abandonment. So I went back to using cocaine. 
And I was like, okay, it's not going to get as bad. It's fine. I have it under control. You don't ever have that shit under control. That is a delusion. That is an illusion of the ego telling you that you're on, under control. We never have any control over anything, even no matter how much we think we do. And so um, oddly enough, I ended up getting a job on TV as a TV host. I have a lot of television and hosting experience. And so I got this job on television thinking, okay, this is going to change me. This is going to make me sober. I'm, you know, I've got to be on TV. I can't be using drugs. I can't be drinking. No, it's not how, it's, that, that is not how that works. No job, no nothing can keep you from, like, cannot make you into something else. Like I was still externalizing my power. Right. It was always like I gave away my power to a man. I gave away my power to a job thinking this is going to save me. This is going to save me. At the end of the day, I got let go from that TV hosting job and I'm excellent on television. I could have stayed in that job, but it was because I was living a dualistic life. Erin, I was lying to everyone on television saying I was sober, but behind closed doors, I was still using. And so my performance on camera was being affected. Because I could not lie to me. I, I mean, I, honestly, one of my best qualities is that I cannot lie. I literally cannot lie because my body has a visceral reaction to it now. Back then I could lie because I had drugs in my system and that is the disease of addiction. We lie and we're selfish. And I don't say that as a bad thing. It's just the nature of the disease. It's the nature of addiction. So I, the biggest difference that I see between the first time I went to rehab and the second is this. The first time I went to rehab, I ran out of money. <laughs> I had just had a miscarriage. Um, my parents and my sister were like, you need to go, like, period. You don't have, literally you have no money. You have no nothing. You've burnt it all. So I had to go. I felt like I had to go. So I went I went to a, like a state rehab center on the East Coast. It was not fun where my family's from. Second time I went to rehab, though, I decided. Like, no one made, I had plenty of money in the bank. I was fine. But I decided I was done with the chaos. And that really is... What I want your audience and your listeners to really hear is you cannot make anybody change. You really cannot. And true change, long lasting change has to come from within. It has to come from that person saying, I'm done with the chaos. I'm going to make that change. I was sick and tired of lying to my mother at the age of 36, 37, lying, grown ass woman lying to my mother. Like I was sick and tired. I was done with that version of myself. So I went to rehab the second time for cocaine and I haven't used cocaine since March. Uh, I think it's been like March. Yeah. March 27th, 2019. Wow. It's been four years. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I was thinking about this this morning. I was, we're, we've started this movement and self-love challenge, 14 days, move your body 10 out of 14 days, no weighing yourself, drinking some water and focusing on prioritizing sleep. And so I wanted this challenge to be kind of the opposite of 75 hard where it's all about how you look and like really more sustainable, um, all about boosting your energy and your inner dialogue and self-talk. And so I was out there this morning and it was so hard to get up. I mean, I'm still bouncing back from this anxiety spiral, which I'm not going to get into right now because this is your moment. But you can absolutely talk about it. Like well, say the, well, well, the, the audience who's listening knows about it. So when I'm referencing it, they're like, oh yeah, we're talking about it. So I was thinking about how change occurs. When does somebody change versus stay stuck in their patterns? And it's like you said, you were so sick and tired of the chaos. And what was coming to mind for me this morning was when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of the chaos of whatever it is, then something within you clicks in and it can be the smallest shift. You pick up a book, you book a coaching call, 
You decide to go for a walk in the morning instead of scrolling on your phone. You turn off the TV one night instead of just sitting and watching. Like it's these little micro moments. But in order for change to really occur, most people have to be sick and tired of the space that they are in. Mm-hmm. That's in, exactly right. In order for it to really work. So I've never done cocaine before. Mm-hmm. I've Don't ever start. <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> I don't plan to at this point. But I'm so curious, like what is the – what when you do cocaine what is the feeling what is the like yeah because i have adhd as well it actually works uh, it calms me down so it works like an adderall um i would rarely go out on it i would stay home and i would write emails i mean i'm i i wrote some of my highest converting emails on cocaine and so what happens is you end up let me n- not you i i attributed cocaine as like my success key. I was like, oh, this is my medicine. I'm so creative on cocaine. It's like, no, bitch, you're just wired right now. You're wired. And you, and, but I was focused. It, it calmed me down. I did not speed up. I actually, it just completely calmed my brain down. So if you actually have ADHD and you take a stimulant, that stimulant actually calms you down. It does not stimulate you. It helps you focus. So I don't take anything now. I don't take Adderall, Vyvanse. My sponsor once said to me, because I had like a whole thing of Adderall, Vyvanse, excuse me, after I got out of rehab. And I was like, am I supposed to throw these out? I go, what if I need to focus? And she goes, if you find something that you're passionate about, you won't need anything to help you focus. You'll just focus. I am on medication. I went actually went back on mood stabilizer starting April 1st. That was a, I've had a on again, off again relationship with medication just because, you know, we live in this holistic world. You and I both, I mean, you know, your raw beauty talks. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely someone who is like, how do I solve this problem? And for a more holistic, like I'm, I grew up with a family of doctors. So like I w- I'm turned off from like, oh, just take a pill. Just I'm turned off because that's how I was raised. But I had this moment in like March of this year, Erin, when I was like, so happy. I'm just peaceful washing my dishes. I had John Mayer playing in the background. It's just like, I'm just feeling good. And my mind starts attacking me. So the way that my bipolar disorder manifests in my brain is just through intrusive thoughts. It's just very attacking, intrusive thoughts. And I'm like, I'm good. What, why is my mind attacking me? You know, like I honestly, I, I like drink 75 ounces of water a day. I, I, you know, walk 10 K a day. I have great friendships. I have awesome boundaries. I'm not emotionally repressed. Like what I'm in therapy every other week. Like, what is it? And then I just had that moment where I was like, it shouldn't be this hard to feel this good when I'm doing the most. I'm doing the most. And so what I want to say to your listeners, regardless of what your choice is with medication or not, it, is, it doesn't matter. It's a personal choice. That's what I want to say. You know, for me, I mean, I had a few friends who are functional medicine doctors and they're like, you don't need to get on meds. And I go, you don't need to tell me what to do. How about that? You don't live with my brain. So... I just want to say it's such a personal decision and please don't allow yourself to be shamed by other people if you decide to get on a little something. I'm on the lowest dosage, so I want to give you an update because we're now a month and two weeks since I've been on meds. My thyroid meds have been really well adjusted. I have never felt better. Mm. Mentally, thank you. I've never felt clearer. I've never felt more at peace and in, it's like steady in my mind. It's steady. And when I do get an intrusive thought, I'm able to just talk to it. And I'm like, we're good. We're safe. We don't need to start attacking the shit out of me. We're good. Like we're, we're it, at that part of me that's very intrusive, that brain, it's just the, the, the most traumatized, abandoned part of my brain. 
who wants to constantly keep me on my toes at all times. Do you know what I mean? Do you get this with anxiety? You're like, do you think I get it? Do you you understand what I mean? It's like- I mean, I was hospitalized because of my intrusive thoughts and um, getting so bad last year, about a year ago. And I'm also on medication and had a really challenging time deciding to go on it because of this holistic space of like, but I'm meditating. I'm a meditation teacher and I teach people how to, you know, choose foods that serve their body. And I, I move my body and I'm, I'm reading all these books. I mean, I've been doing therapy since I was 16 years old with my eating disorder. And at some point you just have to ask yourself, like, why am I, why, why does it have to be this hard? And it doesn't, I'm on actually like quite a high dose of, um, anti-anxiety medication at this point. And every time I had to move up, in my dose, it felt like a failure. And I've really had to come to peace with the fact that I too am in this place right now where I feel better, more aligned, more able to navigate the thoughts in my head than ever before. And I take medication and I move my body and I meditate. And also like, I just want to take a moment on that note as well. Like it feels almost like we have to justify, well, I take medication, but I also meditate and I also move my body. Like I recognize how much privilege I have in my life to be able to have a part-time nanny to, to support with my kids, to have a partner who's bringing in some income so that like finances don't feel so stressful. There are a lot of people out there who need to take the medication and they, they literally can't in this season of life find the space to move their body or meditate and they just need it to get by. And that's okay too. Like that's okay too. That uh, the medication is another tool in the tool belt. And we have to recognize and allow that everybody is on their own life path, their own life journey, and will need different tools in different seasons. I had this moment, this conversation with God, and I was like, I have way too much that I want to accomplish in this lifetime. And the only thing getting in my way is my intrusive thoughts. Like I'm good with me. I'm good. I'm good with me. Like I've, you know, I, I, I was in therapy since the age of 12. So I understand. I understand you. Yes. Uh, from a very young age, like there's nothing that I don't know about myself. Right. It's like you, I know myself better than anybody. There's no like, Oh, I don't trust myself. No, I trust myself completely. I know I, I am powerful enough to destroy my life. I'm also powerful enough to create my life because I've done both multiple times. Thank you for saying that. And also pointing out the fact that like, yeah, I mean, I do sometimes feel, I don't mean to justify it, but it's like, I'm not, it's almost like the, the underlying message when we do that, like, Oh, I walk 10 K or it's like, I promise I'm not weak. Yes, that's that's what we're trying. And like, I'm glad that we're having this conversation because my biggest thing is like, you will not see me weak. You will not see me be weak. And for me in my brain, taking medication was a sign of weakness. But then I realized unmedicated, I was losing my shit. I was yelling at my mother. I was yelling at my sister trying to destroy. My brain will want to attack the most, the most precious relationships in my life. And I'm like, I really feel weak now. That's what makes me feel weak. When I attack my older sister, who I love more than anything, like it's me and her, she's my best friend and I'm cursing her out. I'm like, and she forgives me, of course, because she sees me as someone who's like, okay, you obviously, this is your brain. This is not the real Vasavi. And it's in those moments that I feel powerless and weak when my mind does take over. And so for me, I had to really have a, 
a heart to heart, soul to soul conversation with myself. And I was like, boss, you have a lot in this lifetime. You have a calling in life. God has like bestowed you to like help people with their voices and their this. How the hell are you going to help other people when you literally don't feel sane and serene inside your own brain? So I had to take a big old piece of humble pie. It's the it is the, it is, I will say this. And I, I, I don't like to say like forever and whatever, but I don't plan on getting off medication anytime soon because I feel, I feel like it was the most responsible thing for me to do to get on medication because not being on medication, I was destroying all my relationships. And I don't, I've worked too hard to feel good about myself. I don't feel good about myself when I attack my mother. That doesn't feel good. You know, and we can blame all we want, but the fact is like, and my mom, God bless her. I said to her, you know, I'll apologize to her and she'll, and I'll tell her my mind just attacks me and it takes over. And she was just like, it's okay for you to get back on meds. And I just had to like say to myself, like, yeah, it's okay. Like we can do this. So I, I've never felt better. Mm. I've never felt better being on meds. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Yeah, you too. So Okay, so you're coaching, you're making six figures, you're doing the cocaine, you've gone to rehab, things are starting to, I don't know, like, how are things feeling at that point? I mean, there it's, it's so fragmented, right? Living a double life when you are, I'm literally having what, like eight clients back to back, and then I'm done with clients. And then I'm I have cocaine ready for me to go like it doesn't feel good. But I think when I was in this relationship with this person that ignited this codependency and anxious attachment in me. I didn't even know that I had it. I didn't even know that I could be codependent. I didn't even realize I had this in me. That relationship single-handedly shattered my confidence and my my self-esteem. The relationship after that also in a very covert kind of way, I just, you know, drawn to my narcissist men, my emotionally unavailable men, love them, got to save them, you know, that that's an old part of me. It didn't feel good to live a double life but I could not help myself because I was unwilling to ask for the help because I didn't feel safe with my own parents to ask for help. And so I was just kind of white knuckling it, you know, but now I got to say the biggest difference that I've noticed, like whether you follow me on social or you kind of listen to my podcast or even these kind of interviews, when I go back and watch old videos that I've done, like back in the day, like 2017, 2016, it's interesting because everything that I say, I still believe, but I can, I'm more embodied now. You get what I'm saying? Like the shit that I was, I, I've been doing this. Like if you go to my YouTube, I've been putting out videos since 2011, 2012. And I look and I'm like, you are so young and naive. <laughs> I look at myself and I'm like, you had all the right intentions, but it's one thing to know it. it. It's one thing to say it theoretically. It's another thing to have gone through some shit and actually learn from it. And now when I speak and all my girlfriends will say this, they're like, you speak with conviction. I go, yeah, because I live it now. I live it and I'm not afraid. I used to be so afraid of being so direct like this because I was afraid people would think I was aggressive. I was afraid people would think I was too much. But because I live it now and I there's no question in my mind, I don't give a fuck if you think I'm aggressive or not. I'm here to say it out loud. I'm here to help another person. So that's the biggest difference with the just saying it out of theory and saying it, oh, it's just like logical versus having it be embodied. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What does wellness look like for you in this season? Oh, I love that question. So uh, what a good question. Okay, that made me happy. Wellness for me is um, I am making choices solely for my serenity and sanity. People ask me like for my book, they were like, are you shooting for New York Times bestseller? I go, I'm shooting for serenity and sanity. That's what I'm shooting for. 
I, New York Times was never a thing for me, like being on the bestseller list is in my first book. It's not going to be my last. And I wanted this process for me to, I wanted to embody my message even more, like say it out loud even more. Talk about the bipolar disorder, no matter how crazy other people might think I am, me to get over that. There's so many people who live with anxiety, bipolar disorder, all, and I wanted to talk about getting back on meds. That could save somebody's life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was that wellness for me in this season to answer your question is serenity and sanity. It means that I'm in the sun. It means that I'm with nature. It means that I'm going to make decisions that may seem crazy and selfish to the outside world, but I got to do what's right for me. Also, when I really think about my life, Erin, you know, I don't have children. I'm single. If you know of anyone, I like them tall, dark and handsome. If you know what I mean? <laughs> Not a narcissist though. We're moving past that stage. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the part of me that was attracted to unavailability is like, she's, she's, she's good. She, she doesn't want that anymore either. So we, I, we've had a conversation We're we're on board for zaddy. We're Great. looking for a daddy. Anyway. Uh, a zen daddy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> wellness for me right now is doing what I got to do for me. I mean, I've been going nonstop pretty much what feels like my whole life. And now that my mind feels at peace and it's not as loud and not as intrusive, I'm just, I'm making decisions that are like, man, what do I really want? What do I actually want? And instead of setting a career goal this year, because for me, I am a true artist, meaning I will work for a year or two years on my work of art. I'll put it out into the world, which is my book. And then I'm like, all right, I'm on to the next. Let's go. Like I'm already on to the next. And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that this time. And so I decided instead of setting another career goal, I don't think I've actually ever shared this on a podcast. Instead of setting another career goal, for me, wellness in this season looks like I'm, I'm, I'm searching for commitment. Who does Vasavi need to be to be in a committed relationship? I haven't been in a committed relationship in a very long time. I've, I've gotten quite used to being with me and I like it. I really like it a lot. I mean, almost a little too much, you know? And I'm like, I go, what would it be? What would it feel like if my quote unquote career goal was actually, I'm going to set a goal of, a committed partnership. What does that look like? Who would I need to be? What would I need to let go of? What would I need to allow in? Who, you know, so that's kind of where I, wellness for me is, is uh, allowing love in from a partner. I mean, I have great girlfriends. I have no problem receiving from females. Like all my girlfriends are great. Like it's such, I have such beautiful friendships, but I have not allowed a man to enter that into my life because um, I've gotten burnt. I mean, like straight up, like I've gotten burnt and quite frankly, someone asked me the other day, why are you still single? And I said, because I'm extraordinary and most people are ordinary and I want extraordinary. And so I'm willing to wait for extraordinary, but I also can see how that can close me off from people. Right. So I'm really in a season of like, let me give this person a shot. Let me, let me tap into my own discernment and see, do I feel you or not feel you? And let me not gaslight myself. Mm. I mean, if, if something says to me, this person feels off, I'm listening to it. No questions asked. So wellness for me is listening to myself, period. No, I'm not questioning myself. If I, if I, if I'm not feeling it, I'm not feeling it, period. No more like, uh, uh, maybe. No, we're not doing that. If I don't want it, I don't want it. No is no. So that's what wellness feels like for me this season. I love all of this so much. Your book just came out. Say it out loud. Yes. What is this book about? Like, I mean, you've just told us so many juicy stories and tell, talk to me about the essence of this book. 
Okay, so Say It Out Loud is a book that teaches you how to talk to yourself. You don't need any expensive-ass journals to go through my book. There are verbal prompts at the end of every chapter. I'm giving you prompts, questions for you to ask out loud. I'm teaching you how to access those other parts of you and letting those other parts of you respond back. So essentially, I'm teaching you how to not only talk to, but respond back out loud, which in our society, you know that there's like this quote that says like, you could talk to yourself out loud, just don't respond back. But I want you to respond back. I want you to access the many different parts of you. So many of us are like unidimensional. We're just like, we just kind of so laser focused on this is who I am. And it's like, no, it's not. You haven't even given the other parts of you a fighting fair chance to speak up. And so every chapter addresses a different part of us. I would just read some of the chapters titles out loud. And I also loosely basis off of the 12 step program because I'm a 12 stepper. And so um, here are some of the chapter titles. Say your thoughts out loud, admit it out loud. This is for all my people who struggle with asking for help and admitting that they need help. Um, talk to your triggers out loud. These are for my people who struggle with emotional perfectionism. It's like, oh, I can show that I'm happy, but I can't show that I'm anxious. I can show that I'm you know, grateful, but I can't show that I'm resentful. No, show all of it. Allow yourself to feel it and 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 talk to it out loud. So um, transform your story out loud. Express your emotions out loud. Ask your intuition out loud. And probably my favorite chapter. This is chapter seven. Is voice your resistance out loud. You know, as creators, as artists, we come up against our resistance all the time. And if you do not know how to navigate your resistance, that book that you've been wanting to write will never get written. That piece of music you want to write will never get written or performed. And so for me as an artist, I really want people to learn how to talk to their resistance. And I actually say in this chapter, it's called gentle determination. I use the best of both my parents, right? My mom was quite harsh. My father was uh, he was quite the enabler, but he was such a kind and gentle man. My father loved him so much. But, you know, both of them are kind of to an extreme. So I said, let me take the best of them. My father was a gentle man. My, my, and, and, and my mother, as a, as a female immigrant coming to this country in 74, she had balls of steel. Like, she was extremely courageous, my mother. It's not easy to do that. So I took her determined self, and I created a voice called Gentle Determination. And that's the voice that I teach to my reader in this chapter is, you can be firm, and get the job done, and you can be kind to yourself. You don't need to be an asshole to yourself and route to your destination. In fact, I recommend that you don't do that. Don't be a jerk to yourself. We've all had coaches in our life that were not nice to us, teachers that were not nice to us. They probably squashed your childhood dreams. You don't have to be like that to yourself. And so I label and and um, describe in every chapter, and this is an experiential book, meaning you're talking out loud. I'm giving you questions to ask yourself and I'm training you to pause and allow other parts of you to speak as well, right? Because we all have access to different energies inside of us, right? We have mother energy. We have our intuitive energy. We have our creative energy. We have childlike energy. And each of these energies has its own voice. Anyway, this book is, I think, is going gonna, is, is gonna to allow a lot of people the freedom that they need to say what they need to say out loud. If you could ask the audience a question, like like you have done in this book that might open up some of this dialogue between the different parts of them. Um, what's a question that you would like them to think about after hearing your story and, you know, as they head out back into their busy lives? So I love this, Erin, that you asked me that because at the beginning of every chapter, there's actually, at the beginning of every chapter, it says, answer this out loud. And I give you a question based on every chapter. So my, I'm going to choose two questions. First is chapter nine, play hide and seek out loud. 
So the question out loud that I would love for your audience to answer is what parts of you have been in hiding and waiting to be expressed? I have a part of me called Vixen Vasavi. She is so slutty and amazing. She's just waiting to come out. I had my book launch party the other day. I looked so good. I mean, I grew up in a pretty conservative house. My boobs were out. I had Tom Ford body shimmer oil. I looked so fly. And I was like, this is Vixen Boss. She is amazing. She needs to come out. She needs to be fucked very well. And if she's not, <laughs> she needs to wear a hot red dress to feel good, you know? So that's a part of me that needs to come out. So what part of you have you been hiding and waiting to be expressed? Another is from my last chapter is to live your life out loud. And the question that I would love for your audience to answer is, what would your life look like if every part of you felt safe to say it out loud? Every single part of you. And so, you know, really what my hope for everyone is, and it's not about being the loudest. It's not about being like in your face. I, all my friends will tell you this. Yes, I'm the queen of saying it out loud, but nine out of 10 times, you will find me being in solitude in my house. My friends have to drag me out of my house. But my point in saying this is, is that when all the parts of us feel safe within us and you have given yourself and these parts a safe space to say it out loud, you're not afraid of anybody. You can walk into any room. You're not worried about what are they thinking about me? That voice in your head that's like, how do I look? You would have already had a dialogue with that part of yourself. So I want to give a perfect example. I do a lot of speaking. And, you know, like I mentioned, I grew up on an all white town, right? I grew up in an all white town. Walking into the cafeteria was probably the hardest for me. I would often spend my lunch hour in the bathroom eating because the kids in school would make so much fun of me when I would go into the cafeteria. They were awful. And so when I now get paid to speak, when I get paid to host events, if my audience is an all-white audience, you don't think that 13-year-old part of me is like, oh shit, you have an all-white audience. Now, thank God I can speak to that part of me because I want to make my money doing this and I don't want to I don't want to not be able to live out my calling and share my message because my 13-year-old is getting all hot and bothered and triggered. This is exactly why we need to learn how to talk to ourselves because literally your next opportunity could be right there, but you have that loud voice in your head. Imagine if every time I had a speaking opportunity and I was like, "Oh wait, if it's all white people in the audience, I don't want to do it." That's not me living out my calling. That's me living in fear. And that's not courageously pursuing my dreams. That's me being stuck based on different parts of myself that have not been healed. So we need to talk to those voices in our head because your next opportunity, it will be right there, but you don't see it because you're so scared because the voices in your head are so loud. So now when I walk into a room, if I get on stage, I just spoke in front of an all white audience. I was having so much fun with my audience. I don't care if you're white now. I don't care. That's 13 year old Vasavi, 40 year old Vasavi loves everybody. Right. So that's why we need to learn how to talk to ourselves. So for everyone listening, you know, my example may feel very different than what you experience, but take the nuance of it. Like where in your life are you stopping yourself because the voices in your head are too loud? This is why you need to learn how to talk to yourself, because on the other side of that is your life, the life that you really want. Oh, I love all of this so, so, so much and have these conversations and this inner dialogue all the time. And my husband always laughs. He's like, who are you talking to over there? You're like me. Hello. I'm like, don't you have this inner dialogue? And he's like, no. I'm like, yes, you do. You, you're just not, <laughs> you do. But I think for some of us, it's louder and there's uh, more dissonance between the different voices and the different parts of ourselves. And so it's, it's, I hate saying that it's 
work, but it's a practice. It's a practice navigating these different voices and allowing different parts of ourselves to be heard and moving from a space that's really fear-based and where fear is, is, is driving the bus or is talking really loudly to find room for those other parts of us, the part that's confident or sexy or, um, uh, curious or bold playful, bold. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. maybe a bit aggressive, like yeah. those parts of ourselves as well to show up. And, and you know what? We need those parts. There's no part of you that you need to be shaming. I need my aggressive part sometimes. I need the bitchy part of me sometimes. You know, if someone's taking advantage of me and I need to stand up for myself, what am I going to just let you take advantage of me? No. People who act like they don't have a bitchy side to them, it's like you probably need to tap into that. And that's why you're such a people pleaser, right? Like you need to tap into that part of yourself. You know, I was playing tennis. I, I, I play tennis and my, and my tennis coach he really trained me well because he was like, stop walking out on the court like you already lost. He's like, I need you to channel your inner arrogance. That triggered something in me because when I was a kid, my mother always used to be like, you're so arrogant. And I was like, you know what? Fuck that. I need my inner arrogance. You know, like Serena Williams doesn't walk on the court all like like low self-esteem. She's she's already walked on that court like she's going to win. I'm not saying I'm Serena, but we can all channel our inner Serena, you know? But so it's like, yeah, for, for for all my people who like don't speak up for themselves, don't stand up for themselves, this is extremely beneficial for you to stand up and to really channel that part of you that that wants to stand up for you, you know, like don't like let that voice out. Because honestly, I really do think it's a game changer in both of our career and our personal life when we allow ourselves to let these other parts speak up and say it out loud. And I absolutely love that you get what I'm talking about. You don't think I'm crazy. And even if you do, you don't have to tell me, but you're not crazy. (laughs) You're not crazy at all. And you are brilliant. You've taken your life struggles and turned them into your story. And not only your story, but work that really will have an impact on so many people. And I know that For a lot of women in particular, finding our voice, finding our strength, giving ourselves permission to tap into all of these different parts can be a lifelong journey. And so you're just opening that door for people to get through it a little bit more quickly. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't wait to get my hands on your book. I will make sure to link it down below. Where can everyone find you if they want more Vasavi in their life? Well, you can go to my website, vasavikumar.com forward slash order the book to order the book. I'm on Instagram at my name is Vasavi. Make sure y'all, when you listen to this podcast, tag me and Erin and uh, let me know that you loved and listened to this podcast episode. Thank you so much, everyone. Take what resonated, leave the rest behind. I hope you have a beautiful week and I will see you next Thursday. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Raw Beauty Talks community at Raw Beauty Talks. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.